Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRose Show. I am so pleased to bring to you a returning guest to the show. We are joined today by Michael Howell. He is the CEO of Cross Border Capital and the author of the book, Capital Wars, The Rise in Global Liquidity. In this episode, Michael shares what is going on in the bond market and the dangerous spot that bonds are in right now. We also got an update from Michael on global liquidity, which is what drives markets. It's a really important thing to understand. And he explained where we are when it comes to global liquidity and what it means for markets. We also got his take on where you want to be positioned in this environment, as well as his outlook for the economy. I really enjoyed having Michael on. I always learn from him, and I think you will too. So I hope you all enjoyed this episode with Michael Howell. Michael Howell, CEO of Cross Border Capital and author of the book, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity. It is great to welcome you back on the show and great to see you again, Michael. Thanks for coming on. Great pleasure, Judy. Great to be here. Well, I really enjoyed having you on last time, and I learned a lot about the importance of liquidity, and I know you helped our viewers to, to um, learn as well, especially um, the inflection point that you pointed out. Gosh, it was back in February when we had you on, and it was just such a fascinating discussion. So I think it'll be helpful to you know frame up the big picture for you today, kind of yeah. set the table, if you will, that macro view. What is that for you today where we stand now? Okay, well, this is kind of chapter two, let's say, and uh, maybe we're hitting a little bit of an air pocket when it comes to liquidity. And it's a little bit wonkish, and we need to sort of run through that. But let me try and uh, uh, sort of uh, explain in straightforward terms maybe what's going on. And a lot of it comes back to the bond market. Um, What we're seeing now is US treasuries, uh, particularly at the 10-year tenor, are beginning to sell off. So you're looking at the market yield of around about 4.2% or there or thereabouts. Looks like the bond market wants to, uh, in terms of prices, go lower. Obviously, your viewers will understand there's an inverse relationship between the price of a bond and its yield. Uh, Yields are pushing up, therefore prices are coming back. And it looks like yields are moving up maybe to test 5%. Now, the level we're at right now, which is 4.2, is, if my memory serves me correctly, is probably the highest level for the US Treasury market in yield terms since probably December of uh, 2007. So we're going back a long way here. Uh, Yields have climbed significantly. It's partly to do with um, uh, what uh, Jay Powell has done in terms of raising rates, but that's not the whole story, and I'll come on to that. But why is the bond market so important? The first thing to say is that the most important price in all global financial markets is the price of the dominant economy's debt. That's been true throughout history. So the U.S. Treasury yield is really the key interest rate that we've all got to understand. It's the most potent in the markets. And a lot of other things are priced off the U.S. Treasury yield. So if the U.S. Treasury yield goes up, uh, other yields globally are going to follow. Now, why is this so important? And maybe let me come back to the liquidity story. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right to say that we have been very bullish about the liquidity story really since late last year. We saw liquidity bottoming. And liquidity is a major driver of asset markets. Uh, And that clearly, we think, has fueled uh, this rally in risk assets that has occurred throughout this year. Now, the problem for uh, liquidity is that liquidity really has, if you like, two moving parts to it. One of those is, if you like, a base uh, of safe assets of which, which can be levered up. And the second thing is the sort of the leveraging that the private sector does. 
In other words, how much uh, can the banks lever up uh, money that comes from the Federal Reserve or how much can they lever up uh, collateral? And it's collateral I want to speak of in terms of uh, producing loans and liquidity for either the real economy or more particularly for financial markets. Now, it's the collateral element that is key here um, in this whole equation. And collateral consists largely of fixed income securities uh, and mostly government bonds and predominantly within that government bond mix US treasuries. Uh, there is a, uh, there's a tranche of, uh, of Bund's German debt, which is also important. That's what people tend to classify as pristine collateral. And then on top of that, there are AAA securities. Now, all of those assets tend to move as one, and the US Treasury market is really the dominant factor, the catalyst that's shifting them up and down. Now, we've got a problem in two respects. One is that the yield base is going up. So the value of collateral, the pool of collateral is going down. And in other words, if the Treasury market sells off by 10%, that's essentially a 10% hit to the collateral pool. And therefore, you'd expect global liquidity to basically subside or fall by that amount. But there's another wrinkle in that, which is actually also an important factor. And that is the volatility in the bond market, as well as the yield level. Now, when dealers and when credit providers want to provide credit or liquidity to the market, they look at collateral, but they also uh, put on top of it a haircut. So in other words, it's like saying, you know, I've got some real estate. I've got a, a residential house. Uh, it's worth 250000 uh, bucks. I want to take a loan out on that. And what the lender will say, well, I'm only going to loan uh, 80% of the value. And that's the, the haircut is 20%. And that's fairly normal in lending markets. But in the treasury market, there's also a haircut. It tends to be a lot less than that, maybe a few percent, but it can vary. Now, it tends to vary when there's a lot of uncertainty about the price of bonds and when there's volatility. And that's what we've got right now. So what you've got is a sort of double whammy going on, is that the collateral pool is under pressure because government bonds are selling off. And the second thing is, because of the uncertainty and the volatility, the haircuts that are applied to that pool of collateral are going up as well. So you've got a double effect, which is pulling liquidity down. So what we're seeing here is an air pocket. We have been very optimistic on liquidity. We actually continue to have that view. We think that we're in a long-term liquidity upswing. Well, we've got to remember that markets never move in straight lines. And what we're looking at here is probably an air pocket that will last maybe weeks, maybe months, while the bond market adjusts to underlying pressures. Now, I can come on to those pressures because there are a number of them and they're worth spelling out, but the environment is clearly changing and uh, we need to address that. Well, let's. I want to hear about the pressures because I kind of. This is like my naive view. I always thought of like government um, bonds as being like the safe assets, if you will. So I want to hear more on the pressures um, in in the bond market and why. I mean, it sounds like maybe they aren't so safe. I would love to hear your views there as well. Well, the the question is that you'll always get paid back uh, if you buy a treasury in dollars. There, there's no question about that. Okay, so they're safe in that regard. They're not safe in the in the fact that their value can change before maturity. So there can be a lot of volatility as we journey from A to B, okay, and B being the maturity date. So that's really the uncertainty. And when uh, regulators uh, and policymakers design the system, 
uh, using safe assets, they probably didn't figure there would be so much volatility in the bond markets. Now, to give you an idea of how volatile the bond markets are, that you would normally see uh, volatility, and I'm going to use a number here, which hopefully is not nebulous, you would see a, a figure which is about 7% volatility uh, on an annual basis, really across the yield curve, something like that. Uh, and for comparison, equity markets would be about 18 to 20%. Okay. Uh, in other words, equities are a lot more volatile than fixed income. However, in March of this year, uh, bond markets registered volatility of over 20%. And that is really an eye-watering fact. So bonds suddenly became as volatile as equities. Now, you're still going to get paid back. They're not going to default, or certainly a government treasury bill is or bond is not going to default. But the volatility in the price is clearly making it unsafe. Now, why is this a problem and why is it happening? It's a problem because ever since the global financial crisis in 2008, most of our credit and liquidity generation in financial markets has rested on this collateral pool of safe assets. Okay, It's very unusual to get any lending now, which is on trust. It has to have a collateral backing. And therefore, this base is important to understand. The other component in the base is central banks. Now, some people have, uh, let's say, wrongly uh, suggested that central banks are pulling liquidity out of the system. That is no longer true. Uh, we've been making the case, particularly on Twitter in, and in our substack called Capital Wars, that this has not been the case. What you've been seeing, particularly if you look at the Federal Reserve, is a flatlining of liquidity and actually a slight pickup since the SVB crisis back in March. So they've not been pulling money out, although clearly the rhetoric is that QT is going on. But that's, if you like, purely mystification. The underlying level of liquidity is pretty stable. The problem in the system is the collateral is starting to weaken, and that is pulling down liquidity, and it may cause the equity markets to have some sort of jolt downwards. Now, next point, big point, why is that happening? There's a number of factors that are really disturbing the bond market. And what I'm going to say up front, which is going to sound, again, slightly wonkish, the fact is that bonds are, are often difficult to understand, is that one of the things that people need to think about is a concept in the bond market. It's called a term premium. And that's, if you like, a risk premium that is embedded in the bond that covers your interest rate risk over the life of the bond. So in other words, it's sort of trying to adjust or cover, compensate for potential volatility. Now, normally you would expect that that term premium, so-called, on a 10-year bond would average about 50 basis points. Okay, What I mean by that is that if you had perfect foresight of all the policy interest rates that J-PAL and the FOMC were going to put in place over the next 10 years, you knew that for certain, the 10-year bond should yield you 50 bips more than that average of interest rates. And that's what the term premium is saying. The problem right now is that that term premium is not plus 50 basis points. It's minus 150 basis points. It's in the eye-wateringly low levels. Okay, And that is the problem. So we're starting at a huge, huge discount. And what you'd say is that in a normal world, the term premium should mean revert. And so you've got to start thinking about adding 150 basis points to the underlying 
uh, yield level in the bond markets. Now, it may not be quite as bad as I'm saying, for the simple reason that if you suspected that Fed funds policy rates over the next 10 years will average, let's say, 3.5%, okay, uh, maybe a little bit below where we are now, in other words, what you'd therefore say is that the long bond, the 10-year bond, should be yielding about 4.5%. Sorry, 5%, got my masquerade. Should be yielding 5%. And that is the problem because we're only at about 4 So you can see upward pressure. Now, why should the term premium rise? Let me give you a number of reasons. Number one is that the Japanese have changed their yield curve control methods. Now, bond markets globally are very highly correlated. They move very, very closely together, unlike equity markets. Okay, Bonds are very much in step. So if the Japanese change the dynamics of their bond market, it will have a big effect internationally. And the Japanese have done that. And what's happening in the Japanese bond market is that the JGB, the Japanese government bond, which was fixed by the Japanese authorities at circa 50 basis points at the 10-year level, is starting to inch up now. And most analysts would suspect that it's going to start hitting 1%. So what you've got is a 50 basis point jump in the Japanese bond yield. That should translate on our reckoning to an equivalent jump in US bond yields, ultimately. So that's number one. Number two is that Fitch, the credit rating agency, downgraded US debt. Now, I think one can argue from a number of angles that that was ill-timed. It may have been misinformed. But they're making a point, and that point is that actually the fiscal arithmetic in the US does not look great, okay? What we've got right now is an annualized budget deficit of about 9% of GDP. Now, it won't be as bad as that. That's the current run rate. But what we can see is that ever since, let's say, the GFC, underscored by the COVID crisis, politicians have said, we're going to spend our way out of these problems. We're not going to raise taxes. And so what you've got is an urge to spend all the time. On top of that, the demographics in the US mean that mandatory spending, so things like Medicare, Social Security payments, etc., are just skyrocketing. Okay, So look at the Congressional Budget Office for an independent view. Their numbers look pretty scary. Then you've got to throw in defense spending, etc. And what you're looking at is, uh, if you like, mandatory or uh, almost fixed spending is already in excess of tax revenues. So the government has to come back to the treasury market to fund itself. And that even excludes discretionary spending. So these are three factors that are wor- that are worrisome. I and I can a- throw in a fourth one as well, let's just do to it. crown this. Yeah, let's do it. And that is that if you extend out into later this month, towards the end of August, the BRIC economies, so that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, are holding their conference. And that conference is slated to introduce a gold-backed currency unit, which many people have argued is designed to rival the US dollar. Now, it won't get there, but the point that is important is that this is a collateral-based currency. And collateral and the value of collateral is becoming a very, very important uh, dimension in financial markets. And in our view, that's going to have more of an effect 
on the Treasury yield than it's going to have on the dollar itself. The Chinese et al. will not displace the dollar. Make no, There's no question about that. But they could interfere with the dynamics of the bond market. And this is the reality that's going on. Fascinating. This is this is why it's so great to have you on because you're helping all of us learn. I want to ask um, just a quick follow on: um, if the government has to turn to the treasury market to like fund all of these obligations, who who? This is maybe this is my naive question: who's going to want to buy the treasuries? Exactly. Or who's going to want to buy the treasury at current prices? The market will clear, but the market may clear at a high yield level. And that's the that's the worrisome dimension. So what you've got is upward pressure now on yields coming through. And if you look at traditionally who are the main buyers or who have been the main buyers of the treasury market to date, it's principally been, well, let's say in the last decade, it's been the Federal Reserve through QE policies. And it's been foreigners, particularly the Japanese, uh, the Chinese and the Brits. So these have been big buyers of US treasuries. Now, what we know is that the Chinese are probably going to be reluctant to keep throwing money into the dollar markets, given this geopolitical standoff or the rise of tensions. Um, they clearly haven't got a lot of choice, but they've got some discretion about where they put the money. The second thing is the Japanese are actually altering their the yields on their bond market. So that will actually try and scoop some of the Japanese buying back to Japan uh, out of the US Treasury market back into the Japanese bond market. Uh, so you've got two main pillars of demand which are knocked away. The Federal Reserve is allegedly no longer doing QE and will turn is turning at the moment to QT, uh, which leaves the domestic sector as the only real area to buy. So you're really looking at uh, institutions uh, or households who can buy uh, Treasury stock. And if they're buying Treasuries, they're not buying equities. And it's really as simple as that. So this is how uh, it's very difficult to square the circle. And politicians, as I said, I mean, to emphasize the point again, but ever since 2008, have basically solved problems by spending. They've not thought about raising taxes. Now, with a lot of elections coming up, not just in the US, but worldwide in the next year or so, uh, the audience for higher taxes is not a particularly uh, welcoming one. So it's going to be very difficult for any politician to stand up on a soapbox and say, we're going to hike your taxes, please vote for me. That won't happen. Mm -hmm. So tackling this deficit problem is a big, big issue. Now, I'm not hitting on the US here because the US is probably the cleanest shirt in the laundry. But you get my point. This is a, this is a, a, a major issue. And if the US continues on its current course, just to put this into perspective, uh, the US debt to GDP ratio will double from its 100% of GDP by about 2040. Uh, oh, wow. The, these are numbers that you know we can throw out there in the future, but they clearly at some stage mean something. Mm -hmm. And you, you do not have an infinite appetite for debt. And that is the point. Yeah. So what do you, let me ask this too. Like, what do you think, and you probably addressed it, that the bond market is signaling or trying to sniff out or, you know, because I feel like you can glean a lot of insights from looking at the bond market. What is it signaling to you? Like, where are the other kind of uh, impacts, if you will? Well, I think what, okay, the, the bond market, as I say, is, is distorted 
but the fact that what you've got is you've got a term premia that is hugely negative. Now, one of the reasons that that has occurred uh, is that there hasn't been very much coupon supply. In other words, supply of uh, bonds and notes, uh, treasury bonds and notes in the recent in recent months because of the debt ceiling problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's been a lot of bill funding. Now, the Treasurer are being very, very clever, if you like, in terms of uh, constructing their issuance calendar over the next six months. And they realize that they don't want to swamp the markets with uh, a lot more coupons. So they're actually doing a lot of their funding through the bill markets. So something like 80% of the new supply of Treasury debt that's coming on the market in the next six months is going to be Treasury bills. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, it's the other way around. About 20% is bill and about 80% is coupon debt. Okay, so we've switched around. It's easier for them to sell bills. That's true. The problem is that it's locking in the whole time a higher interest rate uh, and interest payments can here can skyrocket because if you start to raise your interest bill on the debt, then you've got to issue more debt to pay the interest. And so you go in ad infinitum and it becomes a sort of a knife-edge situation. And that's the other worrisome dimension. So what you've got is an absence in the near term of coupon supply historically. Okay, That will write itself by definition. The other thing is that the US and other uh, central banks were very clever in the last uh, 10 years in redesigning regulations for banks and insurance companies. One of the things they did in the wake of the GFC was to change the rules or tighten the regulations uh, things like um, Basel III, which you may have heard of, or Solvency II for the insurance funds, which basically demanded they hold more safe assets in their portfolios. And lo and behold, safe assets were deemed to be government bonds uh, or predominantly government bonds. So there's been a lot of demand for government bonds out there. Now, the two main sources of government paper, uh, pristine collateral, are US Treasury bonds and German bunds. The German Bund supply has been de minimis uh, over the recent over recent years, largely because of QE policies enacted by the European Central Bank. So, if you look at the uh, German Bund market at the ten-year tenor, there is something like of the of the free float that's available for investors. I think it's basically about ten percent of the total issue. So, the ECB is effectively sitting on the rest of it. So, that's been channeling more and more investors into the U.S. Treasury market. So what you've had is huge buying of treasuries over the last decade, which has depressed the term premia significantly on the market. And that negative term premia suggests there's been a huge excess demand for treasuries. I want to go back to something you said earlier, um, and that was, and it, it was brief, but it was the fourth thing you brought up that was worrisome. And you mentioned the um, BRIC economies holding that conference with, and that they are slated to introduce a gold-backed currency unit. You're right. There has been a lot of conversation around, you know, um, de-dollarization or will there be a rival currency to the dollar? You got my attention when you said um, that maybe that's that's more of an, um, the important dimension here being the effect on um, yields, on, on the yield. Can we hear more on that? That was really interesting to me. Well, I think the, yeah, I mean, the, the first thing to say is that, um, what, that, as I sort of alluded to, what this is likely to do is to bring out the importance of collateral um, as a backing for currencies. And so what you've got is uh, you've got a gold-backed 
or potentially a gold-backed BRICS currency unit, and you've got not necessarily just a paper-backed dollar, but you've really got a uh, a dollar that is really backed, if you like, by the the fiscal integrity of the U.S. government. Okay, that's really what we're saying, and that really comes back to ultimately the integrity of the treasury market. So if people are making a marginal switch from one unit to the other, okay, it's not necessarily going to affect the value of the dollar in my view. It's going to affect much more the integrity of the treasury market. So in other words, why would people want to put money into treasury? If, if you were a foreign government, why would you put money into treasuries when you can put money into some more potentially more solid uh, gold-backed unit? Okay, uh, There may be merits or demerits from both, but clearly there's now a choice. So I think it will have more of an effect on exposing, uh, if you like, the uh, the more fragile nature of the collateral behind the dollar system. But make no mistake, this currency that is mooted, this gold-backed BRICS, is never, ever going to displace the US dollar as the world's international currency. And one of the things I think you've got to, you've got to think about is what currencies really do in the international system. And broadly speaking... Uh, you would have heard of what people speak of as the Bretton Woods uh, system of fixed exchange rates, or that was how it was mooted. Bretton Woods was a lot more than a fixed exchange rate system. It was basically the architecture of the international monetary system, or more correctly, the international financial system. And I'm making that distinction between monetary and financial a distinct one. Um, What Bretton Woods basically did was he put the dollar at the center of the world financial system it used the IMF on the World Bank to police, uh, if you like, deficits uh, or surpluses, in other words, to manage imbalances between economies. And the US military basically uh, oversaw or backstopped the entire system of world trade and world capital flows. Okay, So that's really the architecture. So it happened. Uh, they had fixed exchange rates and capital controls, but both of those two elements have actually disappeared. But the main pillars of the Bretton Woods system still exist. We're still in a Bretton Woods world. Now, what does that really mean when it comes down to it? It really means that the US is playing a banker to the world. Okay, A lot of people criticize the US for having a whopping current account deficit. And they keep saying, well, of course, this is about lack of competitiveness of US industry. Complete rubbish. What it shows you is the super competitiveness of US finance. That's what it's really telling you, because the balance of payments, by definition, must balance. And if you've got a big surplus on your financial side, you're by definition going to have a deficit on your manufacturing or trade side. And that's exactly what happens. Now, what the US does is it acts as banker to the world, and that's what the dollar system or the international financial system is. So if the rest of the world wants to borrow dollars, they borrow dollars and the US supplies them, US banks supply. And if they want to invest uh, their surpluses in US financial markets, they do that. And that works seamlessly, and it has done for decades. The question to ask is, can the Chinese, the Russians, uh, the Indians, the Brazilians, or the South Africans provide a rival World Bank in service? Absolutely no way. They're, they're, they're decades away from getting anywhere near that. Uh, can they you know, re-denominate part of their trade uh, in yuan or into this BRICS currency? Yeah, sure, okay. Is that going to be a big difference? No. It's like basically measuring Park Avenue in kilometers, not miles, and trying to argue it's longer. Uh, it's not. Okay, You're just changing the, the denomination of the unit. Uh, what really matters is acting as banker to the world, and that's what the US does, and that's what the dollar is all about.
Yeah. I want to ask you one final question before I let you go. And going back to global liquidity, uh, being in in chapter two of um, the global liquidity story, as you put it, um, I know you look at liquidity flows. You can also, when you look at fixed income markets and when you look at those um, and the way they behave, that gives you an understanding or view um, that you can draw on um, equities and then what's going on in the real economy. So I'd love to kind of pass it back to you to kind of um, frame up your views there and kind of help folks understand why it all matters. And even if you want, um, how you might want to position yourself um, in this current environment and maybe how you see the air pocket resolving. I know that's a lot, but I would love to okay, hear. Okay, let, let, let me try it. Liquidity is all important to markets. Money drives markets. What we're looking at in terms of when we look at global liquidity, uh, we're not looking at traditional money supply metrics. That's all about retail bank deposits. That's much more something that affects the real economy. It's not about financial markets. We're looking at liquidity, which is really a financial market concept. And global liquidity, liquidity is fungible, tends to drive asset markets. And it's been a major factor behind the rise in uh, equity markets through this year, and particularly the S&P. Now, liquidity bottomed, we think, last October. uh, And it's slated to rise, we think, uh, looking at the cycle, probably until late 2025, 2026, it's an upswing. Markets never move in straight lines and there's bound to be some sort of air pocket. And what we're looking at now is an air pocket that may be being driven by the fixed income markets, as I said. Now, what does that mean for asset allocation? Generally speaking, strategically, we like equities, we don't like fixed income. As as it happens, this is not the stage of the market cycle to buy fixed income or longer dated fixed income anyway. We've been very downbeat on fixed income through this year, okay? Apart from the front end of the curve, which is a very different question. So in other words, very short-dated government debt like bills. Uh, that makes sense. It still makes sense to hold that because you're getting a risk-free rate of uh, you know of, of, of several percent even after tax. So that's a decent return. The question is, what should you do now in terms of assets? I think if you, if you would, a lot of things with financial markets, you've got to take at least a 12-month view and start to ask the question, what does what do things look like in 12 months' time? Uh, maybe even two years' time. But you want to be positioned over that time frame. Our view would be is that if you look at how the economy and the markets will unfold, we may be getting an air pocket now. You've got to remember that the second six months of the year, the calendar year, are always more volatile. Okay, A lot of financial crises often occur, if you recall, in sort of September, October, November, those sort of months. They tend to be volatile periods historically. Go back and look at the history books. It always happens about that time. And that's clearly a heads up. You've got to be careful. So I wouldn't want to be plowing into markets right now. I'd want to be stepping back, taking a bit of profit, and then trying to buy back on weakness. I still think you've got to be positioned uh, generally long equities, okay, Uh, with the caveat, obviously, there may be a pullback, but that's a better buying opportunity. I think that's a portfolio that should last over the next two years. Is there going to be a US recession? There may well be a mild recession. I think that may be on the cards. But if you look at business conference surveys, look at the latest um, uh, conference board CEO survey, uh, for the last six months, CEOs in America have been saying the turn is happening. They think the economy is bottoming out. I think a lot of indicators are suggesting we're near the trough. We may be you know, a little bit to go yet. The consumer clearly is on fire still. But in terms of the broader economy, we may be nearer an inflection point. Uh, and then you've got 
you know, as I say, a mildest recession. The main point for the equity market is not whether we're in recession or not. The main point is what happens to inflation. And that's what's really driving equities, liquidity and inflation, or lower inflation, higher liquidity, lower inflation. Inflation has been coming down. All our measures of inflation are suggesting that inflation has actually dipped very significantly and structurally. It'll be low until it's not. Uh, I'd say that was sort of tongue-in-cheek, really because I think we're in a world now where inflation is going to be a lot more volatile uh, than it was. And I think you've got a problem because of the, the issue of funding the government deficit that central banks, i.e. here the Federal Reserve, will have to come back in and buy treasury debt in the medium term uh, because there are very few other buyers. So I think the QE program will have to restart. That's just basic math. Um, and that will be monetary inflation. So investors have got to think about structuring a portfolio with a one to two year horizon with more assets than a monetary hedges than anything else. Equities, as I say, I like. I would have precious metals in a portfolio. I would also take regard to real estate because real estate's always been a very good long-term inflation hedge. I would not be in the bond markets. I think that is a, a way to lose money uh, or to lose money in real terms, certainly. And I'd have some cryptocurrencies because I think that you know, for the modern generations, uh, they're the precious metals. Uh, they're your monetary hedges. Uh, you're not going to have. You don't want to go all in on cryptocurrencies, but you could have a few percent of a portfolio there, just as a bit of uh, safeguard. So that's what I would be doing. And in terms of which sectors, I think that the sectors that look decent in the equity market on that horizon would be cyclicals, not defensives. And I'd be looking very much still at technology uh, and maybe moving into some commodity-related cyclicals on any weakness. And you know, basically, if you look at the markets right now. I think where you've got big mispricing out there is that uh, commodities and commodity stocks are basically priced for a deep recession. I don't think we're getting a deep recession. Michael, I have to say, I love having you on. You are so wonderful and brilliant. And I know the viewers definitely learn from you. And you are always, always welcome on the show anytime. Michael Howell, CEO and founder of Cross Border Capital and author of the book, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Really appreciate you coming on. Great pleasure, Julia. Thank you.